G'day all, welcome to the Highly Adequate Podcast. My name is Desi and this week we're here to talk through uh, a friend of mine and one of my old bosses, Matt's journey through cyber. So thanks Matt for joining us and uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks Alex for having me. Sorry, it just took so long to finally get around to it, but no, I appreciate you hanging in there for me. Yeah, <laughs> it's always difficult getting two people's schedules to align, so that's completely understandable. Nah, um, been looking forward to it. Awesome. So first up, this is always the first question for everyone, but what is a normal day like for you? A normal day, you wake up with a plan of attack, usually an hour, not even sometimes an hour into it, that plan of attack has been completely pushed aside and changed and you're doing something else for the entire day. You get to the end of the day and you think, yep, what I woke up planned to do never happened, so I'll put that on the agenda for tomorrow. I think it's just the nature of working in cybersecurity, you know, because you... Yes, you have your projects, the things that you want to do. You can't, there's a lot of planning, planning for the unknown, you know, when you know, you're, you're working on a situation, then somebody recognizes something. So, yeah, and that certainly hasn't changed no matter what job. And my work day at the moment is still that, you know, like I'll go to work, I'll start down the path. I use the terminology, there might be a rock sitting over there and I'll go to pick up the rock and I'll look at what the, what's underneath of it and think, I'm just going to put that rock back down again and and go on to something else. You know, it's just, yeah, dynamic change. Yeah, it's it's never quite what you expect it to be. And a lot of the time you don't get to do everything that you planned for for the day. Yeah. When, when you started talking about a rock on the ground, I thought you, it reminded me of the time that I learned how to ride a bike. And the advice you always get is like, if there's a hole in the ground or a rock, don't look at it because otherwise you'll run over it and fall off the bike. And I feel that's probably a good analogy for cyber is you, you see a rock on the ground and you're like, oh, that's an interesting rock. And then the next thing you know, you've fallen off your bike and you're like, oh, shit. It's the analogy, like, um, even though I haven't done it for a while, I was always told when you're skiing on the snowfields, there could be one tree in the entire field. <laughs> but if you spot that tree, no matter what happens, you're going to hit that tree. <laughs> As if the tree jumps out in front of you, but no. <laughs> How did this tree get right in front of me? Yeah. <laughs> cyber is exactly the same thing you know you, you try to no, i'm not going to look at that then you start looking at that and you think okay fine there's my day gone so, <laughs> yeah i i feel that too yeah your normal day is pretty hectic picking up rocks seeing that what's underneath them and kind of changing all your plans all the time but let's go back to before you considered you were in the industry and you've been in the industry for quite a while so it might have been IT security back. What was the job you were doing before you got into IT security or cybersecurity? Yeah, well, show my age. It was back in the day when we still had five and a quarter inch and three and a half inch floppy disks and Windows used to be installed by using eight disks. Yeah, the first jobs, look, I've always been short of being at high school and doing working at McDonald's and then a department store. But, you know, I've always worked in technology. Uh, before I technically got into what I would refer to as cybersecurity, I was doing heavy programming development for like a medical organizations, uh, doing intensive care software development for intensive care. I also worked for a considerable period for Qantas as well, working on the development of their reservations environment. So that which, which was fantastic, got to travel all around the world very bad experience because you know your first traveling overseas was all done in business class and you think oh, damn, how am i ever going to go back to your economy after that but it got to expose got a, 
good amount of exposure to a lot of different areas of IT throughout different countries. It was virtually from there that sort of moved me into the cyber area. And that's where I started working with security inside of Qantas. And yeah, it's snowballed from there, basically. But it's always been technology, but very much starting off in that uh, programming language, you know, programming. You know, back in the day, it was um, Visual Basic, you know, I used to do Ruby style programming as well. So I remember going to one of the very first seminars on the introduction of this brand new language called Java. It's been a passion. Yeah, I always started off in that way, programming. This is why I love these interviews is because we, we've known each other since 2020, I think, when when we started working together. And I knew you had a programming background, but I did not know that that was the background that you got to like travel around, work with Qantas doing that and then moved into security. That's super interesting. Yeah, well, that was all done in C, C+. A lot of the medical applications was using Pascal. It's one thing I used to, when I met my wife, she said, oh, do you speak it? Are you fluent in any language? And I said, okay, how do I play this? Oh, I said, yeah, I'm fluent in a number of languages. And she asked me to repeat some of them and I thought, uh, okay, fine. I've got to be honest here. I don't speak any other languages other than English, but I can. I know a number of programming languages. <laughs> you can you can read other languages. You just can't speak it. That's right. You know, it's a bit hard. To, how do you pronounce it? You know, <laughs> you, like you've programmed in quite a lot. What's your favorite language, or what has been your favorite language, and what has been your least favorite language? Because I know this is quite unique. I think between people like everyone has their their favorite which is sometimes usually the first one that they ever programmed in but and then some people absolutely like i hate javascript just because you see malware in it and it's like disgusting to pull apart the worst languages um machine code that's a bit of a pain look the languages i hate the most yeah i'd say javascript just that when you i don't know why but it just it just looks like unstructured mess um, a lot of the time like it does have structure to it, yes. But when you every time, whenever I see it out in the wild, I look at it and think, "Oh my god, that just looks like a dog's breakfast." So, and I've just never had a good experience with it. So, I think most of the experiences, like yourself, have come from the internet response side of things. As far as lots of languages that I love, um, I love C, C plus, C sharp. Big lover of um, Python. Love PowerShell as well. I think a lot of those languages, they all have a with the exclusion of like C, C plus, C sharp, but the PowerShell, Python, things of that, Java even, they've got a very similar syntax structure to it. You know, you've got sort of understand where it's coming from and you can pick it up quite easily. Yeah. It kind of, it seems like the later languages transitioned to, into more human readable coding languages that made it easier to pick up and then program in is what, what I found. I think that's why do it more so as scripting these days rather than actually programming. Programming gives you this perception that you're, you're really sitting there back in the days of the C, C+, and I still do work in those languages for certain projects, but, yeah, you spend more of your time in that scripting style, you know, doing that Python stuff. Yeah, I that takes me back to my uni days when I was, like, allocating registers and memory in C and, like, putting in those the blocks for assembly code because like C couldn't do it, so you do it in assembly. That like that's what makes me think of programming rather than I'm gonna throw together a, a Python script to automate something or parse something in, in instant response for sure. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think it's a 
anybody that's going to get into cyber, having a skill set in at least one scripting language. And if you have a skill set in a particular scripting language, picking up another scripting language is going to be very simple for you. These days, a big promoter and saying, fine, yeah, just get to understand, particularly Python, because there are so many scripts out there in our industry that are written in Python. It's just invaluable to understand it. So, yeah, uh, and I'm it's a bit, yeah, I've got a number of people that I work with that have come from different university degrees and things like that, but it just doesn't seem to be something that they're teaching as much at university these days, particularly in the cybersecurity area. Yeah, that that's an interesting topic, and it's something that Cy and I cover a lot on our other podcast uh, around education pathways and cybersecurity in particular with how much the industry has boomed recently that the degrees aren't technical enough and they are so general like most bachelor's degrees are, but the foundations for cybersecurity being a, a SOC analyst or an instant responder or anything, or even a pen tester, because you do all three of those jobs need some foundation of programming and scripting, but because they're also trying to cover things like cyber threat intelligence and GRC, and then just general cybersecurity con concepts that even if they do have a programming course, it's not in depth enough for the students to grasp it and pick it up on their own. Yeah, agreed. And I find that even a lot of the degrees there, look, a degree is a degree because it's textbook based, but it doesn't really give a lot of practical experience out in the world. And I've interviewed people that have come from just completing a university degree and you ask them what you would think would be standard practice things that you would find out in the wild and they've just had zero exposure and understanding of it. You know, it, uh, it's disappointing to take a look at them, you know, when you've done three years of a degree and you're still having a hard time to grasp of what's happening out in the real world. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess it's that problem when degrees and the people who are putting them together, not, not to put a, a slant on the people who are putting them together because they probably are doing some quite novel research in cybersecurity, but there's a lack of connection between what's happening in the corporate world and what's happening with incidents day to day. So you get a disconnection between the course content versus what the students are coming out with and, and the real world. And again, it's no, it's not a discredit, but you know, it's, and I suppose it's difficult too, because they've got to build a course, which has particular structure, Lots of particular deliverables and if you're adapting it all the time to what's happening out in the wild it's just very hard to mark the students on on that content then yeah so no certainly not obvious now. yeah so moving into the next question it sounds like you over time had learned on the job into a field that was growing uh that being cyber security what was that transition like now that you look back on it in terms of self-study courses that may or may not have even been available just due to the industry being so fresh. Like we, I think we're spoiled for courses these days and then mentors as well. So maybe you could just talk about a little bit about each of those. Look, when I first started more focusing on cybersecurity, a lot of it was just being self-taught and self-study, practicing on my, on my own, you know, sort of bending my programming skills in a different direction to see what I could do and then see how far I could push that basically with regard to cyber. Back when I first transitioned over to it, there, yeah, you're right, there wasn't a lot of courses. I remember going to 
one of my very first SANS courses back in, yeah, 2000. And that was at Darling Harbour. And it was all about autopsy and, you know, how you had to mount an image and then start up the web browser to get the autopsy, all open source tools. And that even was great because it was a lot of the cybersecurity back then, it was all open source tools. You know, that's where it started from. And then it started getting into a lot more industry courses. You know, I remember one of the first commercial forensic tools I used was um, Access Data's FTK. And that was like 1.4 back in the day and MCASE, you know, so... Yeah, you know, and then I did a couple of those industry courses with them as well. As far as mentors, yeah, I I got to know a number of people, particularly in and around the Sydney area. The community for back then, it was just more forensics, I guess you could say. Uh, it was quite small, you know, so I got to know a lot of the... A lot of um, people in that community, um, Nigel Carson is one that rings a bell, which is still in the industry. A couple of people from the Australian uh, Federal Police as well, so uh, which I had some connections with. So, yeah, it was not so much a mentor. I guess, I guess the main mentor I had was actually my uncle, Paul Westwood. He brought me on uh, into his forensics firm, um, which was originally designed for document forensics. Yeah, and he taught me a lot about the the presentation in court, being able to present expert evidence and what's required for that and just the documentation side of things. And and then from there, I introduced the digital forensics aspect into the company. And that's where, yeah, but I'd say in the forensics area, yeah, my uncle was my biggest mentor in regards to that, yeah. Yeah, and then I guess just growing up in the community with surrounded by all those peers that you had within yeah. that Sydney region. Yeah, yeah. so... Yeah, and it was, it's a very close-knit community. And, you know, you're going to court, you're seeing the same person across from you and all that type of stuff. Sometimes you're working on the same case together, sometimes you're not. So, yeah, I remember talking to a colleague of mine once who he was on the, on the, the opposing side, I'll say the opposing side, but and it was his first time turning up for court. I remember he got called first. He got put into the witness box and... He didn't. He walked up with nothing in his hands, nothing at all. And and then they asked him, "Oh, do you have a copy of your report that you wrote?" And he reached into his jacket pocket, and it was all folded up and all that type of stuff. And he unfolded it, and he came to me afterwards and said, "Oh, he wanted to know my opinion of his presentation." I said, "Look, it was good, but something kind of like it's kind of like playing a game of cards. Sometimes you're better off, even if you've only got one document." You don't walk up with nothing in your hands. Walk up with a folder, even if it's just filled with just blank A4 paper. At least it looks like you're walking up with substance in your hands. So Yeah, the theatre of court. Yeah. So, you know, you, uh, rather than reaching into your j- jacket pocket and unfolding your report. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I suppose, especially we've talked a lot about on uh, the Forensic Focus podcast about digital evidence going into court and how lawyers and the court system itself has adapted and gotten smarter around um, digital forensics experts, but especially like that's only been in the last maybe five, 10 years that it's kind of slowly caught up. Whereas if you were going into court back then, if they didn't understand it, they probably wouldn't have questioned it at all. And especially like we focused a lot on the UK forensic scene back then, they didn't even have like an opposing counsel. 
So if you were a digital forensics expert, you would be the only one in that case to get up on that stand and, and talk about it. You wouldn't have anyone across from you kind of counteracting your points or anything. So, yeah. Yeah. Like one of the, I've done several, I've done, I've presented evidence in court a number of times. I remember on one occasion being presented, presenting evidence in court near an opposing counsel said, you know, who's paying you to be here today? And it's funny, you've got to try and join a bit of a connection, not only with if there's a jury there, but with the judge as well. And this opposing counsel said, oh, look, who's paying you to be here today? And I was actually there to represent the Crown. And I said, oh, the Crown is paying me today. But I knew where they were going. They were trying to show bias into it. And I said, well, you know, I said, I've issued my invoice, but I haven't been paid yet. And... (laughs) And the judge turned around and said, if I was you, I'd ask, make sure you ask for a bank check. So, you know, <laughs> it was just that way of disarming the opposing counsel and it was good, you know. In another case, I actually did what's referred to as a hot tub um, where it was myself and the opposing expert. We were sitting in the witness box together being presented evidence and, you know, asking to answer questions. And I remember the opposing counsel handed me a piece of paper and said, uh, Mr. Westwood Hill, what do you make of this? And all it was was just a printout of, uh, like someone opened up um, Word.exe and tried to print it out on a printer. And I'm looking at it and thinking, okay. And she said, what can you make out of this? And I said, well, I could make a hat. I could make a paper airplane. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You know, I said, it's meaningless. I can't tell you anything about it other than it's printed on a, it looks to be a recycled piece of A4 paper. <laughs> that that would have been weird. Like, like I, I'm trying to think. I think I might have been to court when I was young, just like watch something. But I can't imagine being in a witness box with someone else. You'd have much space. No wonder they call it a hot tub. I think that, that's why they call it a hot tub. Yeah. So, yeah. It's but thankfully I was good friends with the person I was hot tubbing with. So. We both had a pretty good sense of humor about it. <laughs> nice. So talking about some of these study you've done, you've done a few SANS courses now, I think, and then some of in the industry certs and, and that. Did you go to TAFE or uni before you kind of got into the professional workforce or what kind of study, other study did you do that you think has helped you progress through your career? I started at university. I actually went to started at the University of New England up in Lismore and then transferred to um, University of Western Sydney at the Penn. And But I found, it's funny, like I was doing a lot of the work and doing the study, but I was also looking at the people that were leaving university and getting out into their careers. In, and everybody was sort of more interested in finding out what's your practical experience? What if, you know, what can, not so much focusing on the degree, and it was that point I sort of decided, fine, yeah, university's not for me. I want to get out there in the wild and start to actually do it. And, that's, and I never actually completed my university degree. So, you know, I thought about going back and finishing it on several occasions, but I don't, I don't know whether I could say the same thing for now, but back then it certainly didn't hinder me. And it, I don't believe it's hindered my career and where I've ended up, put it that way. You know, a lot of it, I, I pick things up quite quickly, you know, so I prefer doing, I, I will pick something up a lot quicker when I'm doing it in the 
in the wild than just simply reading about it in a book, basically. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Yeah, I think I, I agree with you. Um, like, I, I finished a degree, but it was because the job that I was coming out with needed a degree. But I questioned the same thing when I was, like, halfway through. I was just like, why am I here? Like, I, I was doing courses that I was never going to use again. Uh, like, I learned the molten states of steel, which I've never used in my life. Uh, I did two courses on that, surprisingly, in my degree, which were compulsory. So, um yeah, just the amount of kind of useless crap that you learn. I think the the things that I learned out of it were how to deal with people in group projects is is always what I take away from uni, because group projects suck. You've always got, you've always got one that ends up carrying the load, and you've got one that just multiple times ones that just flake in and flake out. So and you end up doing the work for them, and then then the group gets like a. A distinction or a credit <laughs> and they get it as well and they get it as well and you're thinking oh geez I just, yeah I've had, yeah i had a few of those experiences so yeah yeah i think that that was my key takeaway from uni is dealing with those people so more soft skills at it than anything mm. and you find that a lot like particularly when you're doing incident response for like in a professional services matter you're usually working as a team and you know you find that you you will still encounter those people even sometimes in the teams that you work with. You know, it's the same type of situation. You find you're carrying the load for somebody else. So, you know, it's, yeah, that's the biggest thing. I agree with you there that that's the biggest takeaway I learned at university as well. So the next question is an interesting one, I think, for you, noting like your journey into cyber. But the next question is, if you could go back and talk to your pre-cyber self, do you think you would have anything to say to them that would help shape your career? Like maybe it's, hey, get out of university earlier and just jump into the technical. But what would you go back and say to them if you could say anything? On my worst days, I'd probably go back to them and say that interest that you had in carpentry, stick with it. <laughs> so because um, I, I was at, very much at a crossroads when I, in my early childhood. You know, I loved computers, but I loved carpentry as well so and I actually thought about becoming a chippy rather than doing computers so you know but look if I could go back I'd whisper in my ear and say apple repeatedly <laughs> invest 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 I would try and prom- push myself to remain creative I guess I guess you could say you know use the programming language but become creative with it you know and create something and to make something out of that you know like it, it'd be nice I often think about it that it'd be nice to actually, I'm not talking about your Zuckerbergs and all that type of stuff, but just to be able to program something and create something and to see it being used readily out in the wild, you know, that's, you know, and follow that through basically. Yeah. Well, especially like talking about creating stuff, like you've created, uh, and if you're happy to talk about it, but Digital Thought, which is your company that does deep web scanning, and that was always really cool to see in action because we used it in when we worked together and it's still up and running. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, it's sometimes I'm careful about releasing it more out into the open public because just the nature of what the data is. I use it for my job at the moment, but yeah, you know, but being able to, it's funny though, I don't want to commercialize things. You know, I'm not after it for the money or anything like that, but yeah, but I, I look. I love. I love making something. 
if that makes sense. I think that's even going back to the carpentry days, you know, I'm sort of taking that creativity, but putting it into a programming realm and actually producing something that's actually serving a purpose. Yeah. I think I definitely saw that, that aspect of your personality when we worked together, because we would be like on an instant response case and we would get to a point where we would be like, okay, we need to develop some way to, to parse this data that we have or work out we've got X amount of terabytes of data that we need to get through and we need to figure out a way to do it. And then I remember like I would wake up the next morning and you're like, oh, I was up until 11 or one o'clock and I was like coding this thing and I've made this thing that just makes our life easier. And you were like super excited about that you'd put it together and you'd solve this problem. So I think seeing seeing how excited you got from making something that solved a problem, um, I definitely saw that in your personality and, and in the cyberspace, being able to do that. Yeah, big data tools are what I enjoy making, you know, like, you know, turning chaos into something that's fruitful, basically. I get a lot of buzz out of that. <laughs> It was great for us because we had someone who was just like super enthusiastic and made made our jobs easier. Yeah. My wife used the question, why are you so excited? You're just sitting there in front of a screen with a bunch of... <laughs> <laughs> it's, I, I do find it very hard to explain why it's so exciting sometimes to people who don't understand it. it and it's hard to even come up with an, an analogy of why it's so exciting, but it's it's just that constant problem solving, I think, that... It's like that feedback loop of, oh, I solved this problem, now I can move on to the next one. And I think the, the best analogy I've had, it's, I said it's kind of like a mental version of an itch. You've got an itch, can't get to it, but when you finally get to it and you're able to get rid of it, it just it's so satisfying. So, you know, and I said it's kind of like you've got a mental itch in your brain and you need to put it into reality. And then what you do that is through coding. Yeah, yeah, it's really cool. So what areas of cyber do you think you've been part of throughout your, your career? So you've kind of gone from, I guess, development early, really early days doing all the coding to we did instant response together. Um, now you're in charge of a team and an organization doing more policy work and, and doing some of that security engineering again with your security stack. But in terms of how people normally define cybersecurity, so like GRC, instant response, SecOps, all those kind of things. How would you categorize where you've had experience? Certainly from the forensics, when it was more just forensics than incident response, like, you know, incidents back in, when I first started in forensics was malware on a floppy disk. But then moving into digital forensics, not really in what I would refer to as cyber, but discovery, uh, like big data discovery. But now, yeah, you're right. It's my role is sort of like a, a CISO role inside the organization. So a lot of it is spent with policy, that GSC, privacy, there's an aspect of legal as well. And but we're also we're a small team, so it's SecOps, it's you know it's day-to-day, it's project-driven work as well. So I think at my current role, I've got a finger in literally every pie, basically. Yeah. It's of a cyber area. A geologist looking at rocks, mm. everything. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. That's a good analogy. That's a good way to think about it. So we, we were talking a bit before we jumped on for the podcast, I guess, about how busy everything is with life and trying to put stuff together. Do you have any passion projects that you're working on at the moment, cyber or otherwise, if 
if you've got the time and I guess headspace to do it? Various different things. I sort of got different types of projects because I that I keep going in the background because I'll shift from one to another. Like one night I might be spending a bit of time on one project, then uh, the next night I might be shifting to a different one. A lot of the projects is obviously the digital thought that's still going on, you know, making changes to that. A lot of it with regards to different ways of approaching big data analysis when it comes to cyber incident response. So taking that, you know, petabytes worth of data and trying to bring it down to something a little bit more meaningful, doing a lot more project work on packet style analysis on the network as well. So yeah, it's, look, I, my projects are like, I'll read about something or I'll hear about something. And that night I might think, okay, I'll just have a play around with this and just see what I find. So, you know, it's, yeah, projects are shifting and changing all the time. So Yeah, it's a bit of that shiny object syndrome where you're like, oh, this is cool. And then I do the same thing. And now I've just got like a list of projects that never actually fully complete. It's just I slowly play with them over time or I'm like, oh, yeah, I had that project from three months ago. Yeah, you know, like it might be like, because we get a lot of the neighborhood kids coming into the house and all that type of stuff. And they say, oh, can I connect to your Wi-Fi? And, you know, then I'm... Next weekend, I might be creating a, a segmented network inside my house, with multiple VLANs and all that type of stuff. So, you know, working out network security and all. So, just shifts and changes. That's really cool. Oh, I, I guess we've missed a part, but we'll go back just a little bit. Out of the roles that you've done, what's been your favorite to do? And it doesn't have to be one that you would necessarily want to go back to do, but one that just was a lot of fun, you might have learned a lot or you just have fond memories of, of doing it. Yeah, I guess like oh, my role now is good. One role I do have very fond memories of was my time at Newix. And this was before a lot of what happened happened. It was back when it was just a very, very small group of people. It was very foundational. And I remember starting the job and the, I remember asking, okay, what do you want me to do? And it's kind of like being told, oh, look, if you want to sit there and daydream about ideas and then put it into reality. And I used to love that. You know, you'd, you'd have a technology stack in front of you and you'd sit back and try to think of a situation and build it out, you know, and it's, it was that creativeness, you know, like there wasn't so much deadlines associated, but they were looking to see what could be, achieved through the technology, you know, so, and, you know, building up <clears throat> REST-based agents and manipulating the engine to do something completely different. And yeah, just that creativity. I loved it. It's excellent. I think, I think that's very common amongst the people that I have interviewed already, that anyone who's worked in a startup, well, what's known as a startup mentality now, where you get quite a lot of leeway to put your hands in a lot of things and you get that create, creative license to we're not really sure where we want the company to go but we trust you enough to like go and test some things and go and kind of invent and it was yeah it was good you know some things just led to a dead end and it then start off in a different direction you know but it was great you could just trial trial and error and it was amazing what you could produce so what kind of goals do you have for the next six to 12 months and this can be just like Maybe you want to get back into carpentry in the next 12 months. You've had enough of cybersecurity or it could be a work goal, 
It's just like, what are you aiming towards? I'd like to build the team a little bit more from the work side of things. I guess I'm still trying to find a little bit of work-life balance. Working from home sometimes doesn't allow for that because you tend to work longer hours. The next six to 12 months, there's a lot of stuff I want to do around the house. But just continue to build the team, basically, and to try and bring in the team so that they can become a little bit more self-sufficient. Like a lot of the time, sometimes I feel like I'm a bit of a bottleneck for the team because it you know, comes into me. But trying to shift a lot of that so that you know the team itself feels more comfortable to tread into different areas, basically. We've so spoken about you kind of came to a crossroads in your life where you were interested in computers, interested in, in being a carpenter. Was there another dream when you were a kid that you wanted to be, like an astronaut or something kind of really outrageous that five-year-old Matt was just like, no, I'm going to nail this? It's funny you mentioned the astronaut. Like I always dreamt of working at NASA when I was a kid. One of my favourite shows which I'm waiting for it to come back on TV, uh, on Apple, is um, For All Mankind. It would have been a career that would have been fantastic to get into. But, yeah, you know, when you grow up and things like that, you know, one, I found out NASA was over in America. And, and But, look, even from a small age, like I remember I was the type of kid that used to, if my dad left me alone with our lawnmower for too long, I'd take it apart. Anything mechanical, anything the electronics, yeah, I remember even computers back in those days, you know, you used to load them up with cassette tapes and all that type of stuff. I've actually got a memory of taking one of the cassette tapes, uh, two cassette tapes apart for uh, two different games and splicing the tape together and then putting it through the machine just to see what it would actually do when it got confusion through it, you know, all that type of stuff. So, yeah, even from that age, I was always heavily into, into anything technical, technology, electricity, you know, electrical kits, all that type of stuff. Yeah. Robotics would have been another passion I would have loved to have gotten into as well. Yeah, yeah. Like embedded software and embedded like hard or hardware systems that have the embedded kind of chips in them. Right? Sorry, like I still play around with, um, I've got like um, different Arduino kits. I've got Raspberry Pi sitting around the place here that I've programmed up for and things like that. So, yeah, you know, it's... Um, built a little um, Arduino kit that you can carry around in your pocket. It's about that big and it's got like a Wi-Fi and Bluetooth scanner. So you just walk around with it and it sniffs out Wi-Fi and Bluetooth in the air and tracks it and logs it against an elastic search index in the cloud with GPS coordinates. So that way you can build up a bit of a history of different Wi-Fi and different things around the area. That's really cool. So, with all your work and your projects that you're doing, is there anything that kind of we haven't covered? Because it sounds like you're pretty passionate about the uh, like electronics projects and the stuff that you do around the house. But what do you do to unwind? Or is that kind of your outlet doing those kind of things as, as well? That's my de-stressor. I think a, a lot of my de-stressor comes from obviously spending time with the family is a big part of that. But a de-stressor for me is getting something there, just a thought or an idea that's in my head, getting that out and putting it into something tangible. If I can do that, if I just think about something, whether it's something to do around the house or just a little side project, being able to think about something and actually see it actually come into some form of reality, yeah, that's a that's a great way for me to unwind. That's really cool. Yeah, like a, achieving a short-term goal is 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 what it is. You're trying to build up a lot of short-term goals because if you try doing big Long term, it's good to have long term goals, 
But if you have a number of short-term goals and little things that you want to target, you build up a lot more momentum and it just keeps you going. Yeah. I, I think I felt that the other day I was, I was trying to build my website and I'd never written HTML or use CSS before. And I started out and I was just like, all right, I'm going to build this website. And then I realized that that was too big of a goal for me because I'd never learned the language before. So then I was just like, all right, I need to figure out how to just like change the background color and then broke it up into smaller goals. And it, it took me like a week to do, but then I, at the end I was like, like, okay, I've reached the goal of having something that's usable now. But yeah, I can definitely understand the, uh, trying to pick a, a too big a goal and then feeling defeat. And I always get the feeling of like, I'm like, oh, why aren't I smart enough to figure this out? I'm just like, I can do all this other stuff and then I just can't do this, but it's like I've shifted fields almost and it's you have to go back to basics. It's the comparison between like a carpenter and a plumber. You know, just because you can put a door together doesn't mean you can replace a sink, but it doesn't mean it doesn't stop anybody from trying it. So, and look, HTML, you, <laughs> what you think makes sense in HTML just does not. Yeah, you'll do something and say, why is that appearing on the left side of the screen when I told it to do it on the right? <laughs> it's like it's like formatting a Word document, but worse. You feel like you're, um, you're fighting against a web browser. <laughs> I, I think it's a, it's a weird thing to experience, like particularly when you've been in your career for a while. And I think I've felt it less. So like I came out of uni, I went into engineering and I stopped doing like little hobby projects and those short-term goals. And you kind of forget the struggle of learning something new because you get comfortable in what you're doing. And then when I hit cybersecurity, I was constantly learning new things again, like constantly scripting and, and always feeling like it was just always out of my reach and I wasn't smart enough. But it was because you were always learning new things and you forgot the feeling of what it's like being... Because when you're a kid and young and, and coming through school and university, like you felt like that every week. But then you forget the feeling when you're an adult. You have to like retrain your brain to be like, it's okay to suck at the beginning and le- and just like essentially do hello world constantly until you get it. Yeah, well, that's what I tell everybody. I said, you start off with the simplest thing. If you can just get to accept something that you type in and say hello back, start with that and then start adding a little bit like, how do I change the color of it? Or how do I get it to do it in a loop? or wait for me to hit another key or something along those lines. You start you start with the basics and you build onto it. Don't aim for the sky, aim for the first floor. So, yeah, yeah, that's good advice. Aim for the sky, you'll just be so frustrated and so devastated and get so, you know, disillusioned with yourself that you just won't proceed, keep going with it, you know. That kind of segues really nicely into our last question which is, and I guess coming from your experience, you're someone who's in a position now to hire new talent that's coming into the industry or or you might not be looking for um, entry level, like you're looking for juniors to join your team, but you would see a lot of people come through. What are the recommendations that you have from what you've seen and, and even with your own team for someone who is outside the industry who's considering a change to move into cybersecurity? It's never too late. Put it that way, it's never too late. And you would be surprised. I've had people come into our, my team just recently that 
this is their first this is their first job and first foray into cybersecurity. Yes, they've done a few little courses, but their previous jobs and previous careers nothing to do with cybersecurity. Almost any job that you do, it's going to give you skill sets that are transitionable into cybersecurity. They're going to be that bricks and mortar foundation. So taking advantage of that, you know, understanding that, you know, and and don't be don't think just simply because I haven't spent my life around computers doesn't mean that you don't have an opportunity to move into cybersecurity because as much as so yeah, it's got the word cyber into it, but cybersecurity doesn't have as much to do about computers as what a lot of people actually it's a lot to do with bad human behavior. So, you know, the, the cyber computers are the tools that people use, but it's the people that are driving the tools that you really have to think about. And and that's where you spend a lot of your time. And that's where working on other jobs provides a lot more of that skill set. So, yeah, but don't ever think that simply because that you haven't spent your life around computers doesn't mean you can't take an opportunity on to move into cybersecurity. Yeah. And I think bringing that fresh perspective into the job is great because it brings that yeah, cybersecurity is all about thinking outside of the box. If you're coming from different careers in the past into cybersecurity, you're really bringing that capability to think out of the box. I always found it interesting and I still see it now in some like job descriptions where they're like, must have an interest in computers and have built and people put it in talks, but people have built computers. And I always found that funny because like I, I never built a computer until I'd been in the industry for like a year and a half. And then I was like, oh, I need to make a computer. And I had no idea what I was doing because like I'd never put, I like I didn't realize how particular you have to be between like picking your CPU to fit into the socket of the motherboard, which has nothing to do with like at all with my job. But yeah, it's funny how that's kind of like, Oh, if you're interested. Like... I think that's where they think that if you're going to be good at cyber, you've got to be that real traditional geek, you know. You know, they're going back to that television show mentality of what cyber forensics and cyber security is all about. You know, you're, you're you know, building computers and, you know, all that type of stuff where it's it's not about that. It's more soft skill than it is that technology and you know that capability of you know working with hardware but i think by saying that you you know you you're working with computers and you know being able to build computers i think that's just reinforcing that they're after that geek mentality you know and i'll i'm a geek and all that type of stuff but it's more to that basically yeah yeah like it, i i agree like 100 i really enjoyed building a computer but if i was hiring someone i wouldn't look for that skill set one of my jobs is making content you don't need to build a computer to make content you need to have a creative mindset that you can build a story and have some of the technical skills to put that story together but i'm not expecting someone to like build a, a tower and make sure it turns well, on and i've actually said to people in interviews i said what i'm i said i'm not after somebody that can rip a computer apart. I'm after somebody that's got a creative mindset to them, but, you know, to problem solve, but also somebody that is inquisitive and wants to find things out for themselves. You know, like I'll help anybody through a problem or a solution, but I get a lot more satisfaction and I'm more receptive to helping people if people will come to me and say, look, we've got this problem. 
I've considered doing it this way. I've looked into doing it this way. If you come to me with a problem, but you come to me with some ideas for a solution, you know, but if, don't just come to me with a problem. You know, I, I like people that are proactive enough to think of some ideas, even if they, they don't work out, but just being able to sit back and think about some ideas. Because I, I definitely agree. Like I find in that situation, if they've come with some ideas, usually the hurdle that they have is the technical setup. And then you can be like, okay, well, here's the technical setup. Now go and try your idea. And they probably like 80% of the time are successful because they've thought through it. They've done some research. They just, like, it might be, I don't know how to set up two VMs and network them together to test this theory that I have. And you're like, okay, cool. Let's, I'll step you through how to set that up and then test your theory with the application. And then you're good to go. Yeah. It's just giving them that extra step, but it's, what I don't like is when people come and they're like, yeah, I've got this problem. And I'm like, have you Googled it? And they're like, oh, no. And I'm like, okay, well, go Google it first. What does some guy five years ago said on Stack Exchange? Because I want to know what he said, because he's probably right. So, or, you know, I'm sure there's a YouTube video where somebody's doing it. You know, like, you know, just don't wait for it to be given to you. Try to find something out yourself, you know. Then we'll work on it together. I think that's that's really good advice. And especially for people who are kind of on the edge considering um, if they want to change careers, that, that it isn't too late. Like I've, I've seen recently, I think he was 52 and transitioned into cyber. So like age, skill set, I don't, I don't think anything should hold you back from moving into this kind of no, career. it's the passion you demonstrate for it. Yeah, it's, you get a lot of people that, don't want to show that they don't know something. You can really tell those people apart when they say, oh, yeah, I understand what you're saying and all that type of stuff where they clearly don't. You know, don't, you know, I like people when they're not afraid to say, I don't understand what it is that you're saying. Can you explain that to me again? I've never heard of that. You know, that honesty aspect is is useful because in cybersecurity, you're not a, you can't be a master of all things. So, you know, and that's why it's a team sport because, you know, You've got somebody that's good at one aspect of it. There's another one that's good at another aspect, you know, and you're working at it as a team. Yeah. Yeah. For for the listeners, I don't know plenty of things. And often when I talk to someone who does know something, I, I say, explain it to me like I'm a smart five-year-old is what I like to say. I, I think it helps also, like I like taking that approach from my teaching is like, if I can't explain it in a basic enough way, it probably means I don't understand it enough to teach. Like if I can't teach someone it, I probably don't understand the ins and outs of it enough uh, to be talking about it in depth. We do that in throughout my own team. Like if I make a PowerShell script to do something, for example, then usually on like a Friday afternoon, I'll, uh, the team and I will just have a catch up on Friday afternoon. And I'll just walk through the script and say, look, this is what I started and this is this is what this is doing. And I'll take it apart piece by piece and say, this is what this section of it's doing. And when they start seeing it deconstructed and then putting it all together, it makes a lot more sense. I remember you doing that a lot with us when we worked together on the new scripts, when we were doing kind of like data discovery and, and you were taking us through step-by-step, like what the data was pulling out and why that may, why that was significant to make it easier for either us to review it, or in most cases, we we're handing them it to lawyers so non usually non-technical people, but how you would structure it and, and what the code was doing, which was like super beneficial 
to see like the back end of you weren't just putting it in you were understanding what it was doing you want to, you want people that are not afraid about taking it out of a black box basically because you get a lot of people putting it in a black box because they want to hide their secret source you know they think it's another form of job security i must admit i've often thought about getting into teaching but yeah i just don't know <laughs> Probably too painful. I don't know if I could go back to answer. scoring essays and all that type of stuff. I hated it when I was at school. Well, Matt, it's been a pleasure having you on. Thanks for joining us and talking through your history. I'm sure some of our listeners will definitely connect with the story that you have and, and also take on some of the advice that you've given through this session that we've done. So just, again, thanks so much for joining me. No, Alex, I'm, like I said, I've been really looking forward to it and I'm yeah, really Really honoured that you asked me to join. I really am. Thanks, mate. Well, nearly all of the content will be free, but if you want to support, make sure you subscribe to the podcast, like and subscribe to my YouTube channel. And if you're feeling charitable, uh, head over to my Buy Me A Coffee, either to make a donation or sign up for a membership. All the links will be in the show notes, but for a hub of all content, please head to my website, hardlyadequate.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you all later on.